So, we are finally done with the judgments of Revelation. Most of 15 chapters you've endured. <laughs> That's what's up on the screen there. Uh, in the course of that, there are some pretty difficult passages that had to be dealt with. And I want to commend Marty for dealing with those because I didn't get any of them. <laughs> anyway, uh, anyway, the book, uh, the Revelation, uh, is, you know, if we look at it the way we've been looking at it, these things aren't entirely over. There's more to come in these various judgments and difficulties and troubles that we saw there. Um, in fact, the word apocalypse in uh, English has really taken on mostly a, a contemporary English, a meaning of being some sort of a universal, widespread uh, destruction, disaster, disruption of some kind. But the name of, the, of John's visions is called the apocalypsis in Greek, and that's from the word to reveal or to uh, uh, just uncover, to look behind the curtain. We're mostly done with the, the disaster parts of apocalypsis, but we're not done with the reveal parts, and that's what we'll be getting into for the next couple of weeks. This morning we'll be covering the first eight verses of chapter 21, and this passage is closely related to the last five verses of chapter 20. Uh, the final judgment really is presented between the two of them as having two, two parts or two sides. The judgment of the wicked uh, in the end of chapter 20, verse 11 through 15, and the judgment, the reward for the righteous, which we'll be looking at in the first eight verses of chapter 21. 21, 1 through 8 is also an introduction or a transition to a more detailed description of the new Jerusalem and which will occupy most of the rest of chapter 21, the first five verses of chapter 22. And we're going to do that next Sunday. But for now, let's take a look at this initial text. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband and heard a loud voice from the throne saying behold the dwelling place of God is with man he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God he will wipe away every tear from the eyes from their eyes and death shall be no more neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away and he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Now we've talked about all through Revelation how much of Revelation has roots in the Old Testament. Uh, the illusions, I can't remember last time I saw someone who tried to come up with a count of the number of allusions and references and revelations of the Old Testament. It's like 430 or something like that. It's an incredible number. And so it forms this rich kind of background and foundation for all the things we're seeing. And I want to look at a couple of passages at the start here to see where we saw that in the Old Testament. There are passages really we've looked at already through Revelation. And uh, they talk about the same thing. 
In Isaiah 65, and if you know Isaiah, this is the next to the last chapter of Isaiah, so we're getting down to the end of it. For behold, I create new heavens and new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy, and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. And then in Ezekiel 37, which we've also seen many allusions to or talked about throughout Revelation, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. When the nations will know, then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel, but my sanctuary is in their midst forever. So this is kind of what we're beginning to look at here, at least the Old Testament prophets' view of this, which was from much farther back, farther away than that of John, all prior to the Messiah. John's revelation had the advantage of being after the Messiah. Now, in these in this first six verses, there's a significant debate over the meaning of this passage, and it centers on the three words that are highlighted. I hope you can see that in the color coding. Um, what does passed away mean or tell us about new and first or former things? Now, for most of church history, the accepted understanding was that the heaven and earth would be redeemed or renovated. The first or former would be made into the new. During the last century or so, there have been a number of theologians who have argued that the literal understanding of the word passed away indicated that the first or the former heaven and earth would be completely annihilated. Start over, just like Genesis 1 again. Now, I don't hold that position personally, and so what I'm going to present is the more traditional, older position on this, that it's a renovation, a uh, renewal, a redemption that we're going to see in the heaven and earth. The key word, really, and I'll give you some of the reasons as we go here, the key word in the debate is to pass away. Uh, Apergamai is a Greek word. And this word can indeed mean to annihilate, put out of existence in some context, but the most primary meaning and the most common meaning is to move from one point to another, to go away, to depart. In Revelation, it's used eight times, including the two in this particular passage, verses, in verses 1 and 4. We saw it first in chapters 9 and 11, where, we had, where John was told that the first and second woes have passed. Those woes did not cease to exist in the sense that their effects continued. They came and went, giving way to a new set of circumstances. Next, we saw three places where the word is used and is translated, I went, in the case of John going to the angel in chapter 10 and asking him to give me the little scroll. It's translated for the dragon in verse 12, chapter 12, the dragon went off to make war. And in chapter 16, we have the angel 
went and poured out the, his, his bull on earth. Those are all this very much this idea of just going away or you know moving one place to another. In chapter 18, we saw this verse talking about Babylon, the fruit for which your soul longed has gone. The phrase has gone is the same word. From you and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. I think this one's more like what we see in chapter 21. We saw a new heaven and earth because the old had passed away. These refer to the previous conditions of the world that no longer prevail because God's making them new. They've gone away in that sense. Now, the word new gets a little debate, too, because there's two words in Greek you can use for new. Neos, which we, a lot of us may know as neo-whatever, uh, means new. And kenos, which refers, generally both of them refer to something recent versus something older or in the past. But the references, particularly with kenos, is, and that's the word we have here, also talks often about a change of quality. It's not only from newer in the sense that it's before the old, but it's changed quality from the old in some way. I've been, I tried to work, think all week about a, an, an analogy, and the best one I could come up with was the idea that it's the difference between an old house with the original materials and the floor plan and the same house after a major renovation. It's still the same house. In fact, perhaps the same people live in it. If you've ever done remodeling, you know what that's all about. <laughs> the difference is in the quality of the materials and maybe a more efficient floor plan. In John's vision, the new heaven and the earth are still the sum of all created things, like they were in Genesis 1. But now they've been transformed in some dramatically new way. Heaven and earth are new because they've been fundamentally changed from the first or the former. They will be different from the old, but not in the way that makes them no longer recognizable. They'll still be a familiar heaven and earth. This is also true, the New Testament tells us, about our resurrection bodies. Somehow they're recognizable, but they are new. They're redeemed, they're renovated, they've been changed. Renovation or redemption also preserves the idea that God's evaluation of the first creation was consistently, it is good, seven times in Genesis chapter 1. Now that good got tarnished by the sin of the creatures that he made, us. But God's good creation is going to get put back to the way it was. It will be changed because God in his grace initiated a plan that started way back then in Genesis 3 with redemption that led to the birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ and the future of the new heaven and the new earth. Now the context of John's visions Jesus has executed the final judgment at the end of chapter 20 on rebellious humanity. And when that started, the corrupted earth, it says even heaven and earth and heaven fled from the presence of the, of the one on the great white throne. When the judgment was finished, everything had changed. All sin and all evil had been eradicated. 
that wasn't there anymore from heaven and earth. The first or former things that have been corrupted passed away. The new heaven and earth remain without any corruption. <clears throat> now, this is an important passage we'll look at twice this morning in Romans chapter 8 that underscores this, because this is what Paul anticipated. <clears throat> it says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. What's going to happen to us and what's going to happen to the new heaven and new earth is all of a piece. Back to our slide from before. Now, going through this in a little more detail, there's a phrase at the end of chapter, of verse 1 that says, The sea was no more. <clears throat> I know that will be a blow to those of you who love the beach. But it's relevant, actually, to what we're talking about here. <clears throat> um, if the earth was annihilated, why do we have this sign? Why do we get told the sea will be no more? Why is that an extra comment? Um, and what does it mean? The sea will be no more in this new earth. Well, I think we need to remember here that the sea was consistently a symbol in the Old Testament of evil and chaos. You may recall in chapter 13, it was a beast that came up from the sea that began to do some pretty nasty things to the people who were followers of God. <coughs> Excuse me. I think we can conclude that with some certainty then about this, we maybe don't know whether there will be large bodies of water in the new earth. It doesn't tell us that really one way or the other. But we can say for sure there will be no evil or chaos. There will be no corruption. In fact, it doesn't even appear to contain the lake of fire into the be to which the beast was thrown. That seems to be in a different dimension of some kind when you look at this whole picture. <coughs> Excuse me. are too good of songs to sing. I lost, <coughs> blew my voice there. Anyway, <coughs> the next image in John's vision was in the New Jerusalem. <coughs> and he says he saw it coming down out of heaven from God. Now this is important. The movement is not from earth to heaven. The movement is from heaven to earth. Our ultimate destination is not heavenly. It's earthly. The idea that true human existence is some kind of ethereal, spiritual energy is not biblical. That's the stuff of scientific mythologies and Gnosticism. Humans were created as physical beings, and their true existence is as physical beings in a physical environment, one not corrupted, by sin, a physical existence that can be called glorified because of the complete absence of the sin nature and the presence of God in the Lamb. 
as we will see in more detail, the last part of chapter, the rest of 21, the description of New Jerusalem is pretty highly symbolic. Uh, and the symbolism starts here because we have the holy city and the bride adorned for a husband. Those are not exactly the kind of images you put together typically in your mind. Two very different images, but the one about the bride, of course, reminds us of, cha- of Revelation chapter 19 where we talked about the marriage feast that was to come, Mary's feast of the Lamb. <clears throat> Next in John's experience shifted from visual to auditory, and you see this often back and forth all through Revelation. I heard, I saw, I heard, I saw. And he heard that the bride, city, whatever this image is, however you want to put that together in your head, coming down was for the purpose of becoming the dwelling place of God with man. He, God, will dwell with them, mankind. The word translated to dwell is important here. You only find it five times in the New Testament. Now, you find the word dwelling, but the verb to dwell only five times, and all of them are in either the Gospel of John or Revelation. John probably wrote his Gospel about a decade before he had this experience on the island of Patmos that we read about here. And his account, the latest of the Gospels that was written, of the life of Jesus reflected some serious thought about the theological implications of who Jesus really was. Some of his conclusions were written in the prologue, the first 18 verses of John in the first chapter. And a couple of those verses that we see there, one's in verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. There's one of the occurrences of dwelt. And you jump ahead to the very last verse of that prologue, in 18, no one has ever seen God The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Now we also saw this word back in Revelation chapter 7. And it's translated there, well, shelter. Behold, a great multitude that no one could number, and I'm obviously skipping a bunch here, standing before the throne, before the Lamb. These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They are before the throne of God and serve him day and night and in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Well, now we find out that this chapter 7 was actually a preview of chapter 21. Those connections are all over, if you haven't noticed, throughout Revelation. And we'll see more parallels of chapter 7 when we get further into chapter 21. For now, back to our text. In chapter setting, the setting was a great multitude standing before the throne. That one appeared to be taking place in heaven, but now we're not so sure. Chapter 21, we find out that the presence of God, the service of worship, uh, the wiping away of tears, all those things will be a reality in the new earth. It's the total absence of sin and evil 
that allow us for no tears, no death, no mourning, nor pain. But there is nothing in these words, I think, that indicates anything about our memories of those things. Now, there's another area of debate. Some theologians believe that what goes along with this is we will have all the memories of sin wiped away. And it kind of goes along with that verse that your sin will be put as far as the east from the west. I think that's true to a point in that we will never have to think or remember sin in the context of what we do right now as people with a sinful nature that's desperately at work in our hearts all the time. But I've tried to think about that in terms of what about when that sinful nature is gone? How will that change our perspective or our understanding of the things we call sin and evil now and the, and the horrible things that happen as a result of that? What will our, would those memories be like? And I think that it's very possible that those are still there because now we see things much more with a clarity we could never see before, detached from the suffering that's actually a part of all those things. We can see them as God saw them in all their aspects. And I think really that's one of those things that will be there as a reminder all through eternity of why we can be so thankful that God has done what he has done for us and for the new world in which we've been placed. My opinion, you can disagree. The phrase, and they will be his people, is interesting. <clears throat> Get back to the text. The word translated people is actually plural. They will be his peoples. And the word they in here is actually an emphatic pronoun, which you have in Greek. That's there. When you use the pronouns, they're there because they're, they're emphasizing something. And so you, a literal word-for-word -word translation of this is, and themselves, peoples of him, they will be. Sounds a little like Yoda, you know. The, that's, that's, that's where I think they came up with his syntax, but his, they were reading Greek. Um, this reflects chapter 7 again, because this great multitude is from every nation, from every tribes and peoples and languages. And this will become significant when we get further into chapter 21 and the beginning of chapter 2 and we talk about the nations. So hold that one in mind. Finally, the one seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Uh, it's probably significant that the word making kind of gives you the idea that this is a process that's going on and getting done as opposed to the creation which is there in many ways. And there were different stages to it but uh, what we read about in those stages is it just started from nothing. This sort of implies to me that we're doing something with something already there, like you make a piece of furniture or you make a cake. Anyway, you start with something. Uh, this will be a restoration, renovation of Eden uh, to its original purpose as a meeting place of God and man. And we'll see more references to Eden before we get done with chapter 21 and the first part of 22. So what will our lives be like in this new Jerusalem and this new earth? Uh, J.I. Packer has a nice summary to this that I'd like to just share with you. He wrote, uh, so the life of heavenly glory is a compound of seeing God 
in and through Christ and being loved by the Father and the Son, number one, of rest and work, of praise and worship, and of fellowship with the Lamb and the saints. Now back in chapter 14, we read that blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Now that could mean a number of things, but I think the suggestion might be there that the believers will rest from their labors, but those deeds that follow them will continue to work. They'll continue to be part of the work in that world without sin. When a redeemed humanity resumes its original position as stewards of God's good creation. Central to all this, of course, is the fellowship with the Lamb and the saints. And just for a little quick digression, uh, this idea of fellowship with the saints, I don't know how many of you have had this experience, hopefully many of you had, where you'll meet somebody new or see somebody you haven't seen for maybe even decades, and you share this common Lord, this common faith, and you just spend time talking together about what the Lord has done in your life and, and how he's led and blessed and, and all the things that go along with that. And I like to think that part of this life in this uh, new earth, that I'll get a chance to talk to every single believer that's ever lived and share a story. And I'll have lots of time to do it. John was then told, write down, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. This is another phrase, trustworthy and true, that's repeated. We re- it's repeated in 22, verse 6. Uh, that won't be next week, but the week after that. Uh, and the plural of this is exactly the same words in two other places in Revelation. One of them was in the letter to Laodicea and to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness. Same words, faithful and true, although the Lord translated slightly different. And in Revelation 19, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, one sitting on it called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. Now both these verses are descriptive of Jesus. Which brings us to an important question about this passage. In verses 3 and 5, The words that John heard were spoken by a voice from the throne, and by he who was seated on the throne was the one speaking God or the Lamb? The Father or the Son? There's been a similar ambiguity all throughout Revelation, and we'll see some more of it before we're done. But the next part of our text might shed some light on this. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of the life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. 
not entirely done with pictures of judgment. The word translated as done here, uh, we saw in chapter 16, verse 17. Uh, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. Now that was the last judgment in that series of seven in three different parts uh, that we saw in Revelation. There it was the last of the judgments in that sense, last of the bold judgments particularly. Here it's the renovation and the heaven and new earth has been completed. There the judgment was completed. The one who spoke to John identified himself as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And he did so with another one of those emphatic pronouns. It's actually, I, I am the Alpha and the Omega. And the one who's, uh, Isaiah's prophecies in chapters 40 through 48, we've looked at some of those also through here, but they're primarily a polemic against the foolishness of idolatry. But it also has a lot in those chapters about affirming the true nature of the true God. And some of Isaiah's words are echoed here in Revelation. Keep in mind that Alpha and Omega are the first and last letters in the Greek alphabet. In Isaiah 41, who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning... I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. In Isaiah 44, 6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Now, the first part of that verse says the Lord, the King of Israel. It looks like there's two people involved here. And his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, but Everything after that is singular. So this is a new revelation. We've seen it before in the Old Testament, in Isaiah's prophecy, particularly here. And there's a whole set of related statements in Revelation that you may have noticed as we've gone through. I put them all together. Starts clear back in chapter 1. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And then later in that same chapter, Fear not, I am the first and the last, living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. In chapter 2, verse 8, the angel of the church of Smyrna is told to write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. In chapter 4, a couple verses, we have in that throne room scene there in, in that chapter, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And then worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Here in chapter 21, we see it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And I don't want to get too far ahead into Marty's territory here in chapter 22, but you can see all of them put together in that one. Now, back there, when we're looking at the ones in chapter 4, that second half, I'm going to include verse 11 there because it's another one that reminds us a lot of the prologue of John's gospel. 
which says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was beginning, was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So what's the answer to the question of who is speaking? God of the Lamb. My point here is to emphasize that the development of the doctrine of the Trinity was not something the early church theologians pulled out of the air. They were striving to be faithful to what they found in Scripture without leaving anything out. And that's how it came from. Now, I want to finish this morning, and we'll talk a little more about that next time as well, but I want to finish with a contrast in the last two verses. I think that's over the top of my head, so I'm better moving. Uh, the one who conquers will have this, his, this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Now, the one who conquers is another phrase that's important in Revelation. It's exactly the same phrase found seven other times in the seven churches. And I put all these up here for you in one spot. To Ephesus, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. And Smyrna, to the one who conquers, I will not, will not be hurt by the second death. To Pergamum, the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and a white stone with a new name. Thyatira, to the one who conquers, I will give authority over the nations and the morning star, which is a symbol of authority. To Sardis, he, the one who conquered will be clothed in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. To Philadelphia, to the one who conquered, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. And in Laodicea, I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne. Those are all promises now that have been made early, early on in Revelation. That were made to those who overcome, who are victorious, who conquer. Those are all good translations of that word. And now, these earlier promises, we've got, we've got added the one who conquers will have this heritage. The only time the word inherit, to inherit, is used in Revelation is in, the, is in this verse. Uh, it's used frequently throughout the New Testament in context describing the future of those who are believers. A particularly relevant example of that is in the Olivet Discourse in chapter 25 of Matthew in verse 34 then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Concerning those who conquer, John was told, I will be his God and he will be my son. You may have noticed that that is an individualized and personalized restatement of what we saw in verse 3. God himself will be with them as their God. This is also language of adoption involved here, about which Paul had much to say as we saw in the same passage we were looking at earlier. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. 
The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be comp- worthy comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That brings us back around to where we started with the new heaven and new earth being renovated. Now what about the rest? Well, we got them covered here too. I've already read this, but this is just a little different translation of the same verse. In the Greek text, it's eight words connected with the word and. Just single words. So it's a little, we lose a little bit, but we have to add words to make sense of these. <clears throat> the first two, cowards and unbelievers, can probably be taken together as referring not only to unbelievers generally, but also to those in the churches who have compromised in the face of persecution. Uh, in other words, what we're looking at is the opposite of what was used to describe the redeemed in chapter 17 as those called and chosen and faithful as opposed to unfaithful or unbelieving. I think the fact that all unbelief is leaving this new earth and new heaven means that belief continues. We always have been and always will be creatures that operate by faith. We operate by faith all the time. Our problem is we put it in the wrong objects. Then we'll have it in the perfect object. And I think it will still be there. Detestable persons translates a word that's used only one other time in the New Testament. Other English translations of this word are uh, vile, abominable, corrupt, polluted, uh, it's actually from the root word, which means to stink. So that kind of gives you the idea of that one. Murderers, pretty self-explanatory, although we should remember that Jesus extended the command not to murder to include anger that produces bitterly insulting language. And that's from the mountain. Sexually immoral people, all one word again, translates the word pornos, from which we get our word pornography. Um, It's only used 10 times in the New Testament. We'll see it again in chapter 22. Uh, You may recall, as we've gone through this, that oftentimes these words like uh, pornos and words related to it in the Old Testament and the Greek Old Testament and the New Testament, especially in Revelation, are used as metaphors for idolatry. However, I don't think that's what's used here because idolaters are singled out later on in this list. I think more likely the intent here is just quite simply to include all behavior that violates the standards of of the commands of God. Sorcerers refer to those who practice magical arts as a means of manipulating people. Uh, Recall that Babylon deceived the nations by her sorcery. We went through chapter 17 and 18. I commented that deception through sorcery is still a preferred weapon of the evil one. Uh, Our modern world may not actually use spells and incantations, but we do have advertising propaganda spin and sound bites, which fulfill pretty much the same function. And all of these are regularly used for the same purpose, to manipulate others. 
Those engaged in these practices appeal to emotions rather than reason and see nothing wrong with promoting half-truths and even outright lies to get the correct response. Idolaters, a compound word that means simply image worshiper or image server. It includes anything and everything that gets placed above God. Both Pergamum and Thyatira, if you recall, were singled out as dangerously tolerating idolatrous teachings in their midst. The final item in the list is all liars, and that is two words. The word all may have been intended to emphasize the part that deception played uh, in the godless activities of the dragon and Satan, who were called, who's called the deceiver of the world, or the beast and the false prophet who deceived those who dwell on the earth, and the woman Babylon who deceived all the nations of the earth with her sorcery of economic and cultural seductions. These are all, particularly this last one, is a stark contrast to the redeemed who are characterized back in chapter 14 as those who follow the lamb wherever he goes. In their mouths, no lie was found. And for all those included in verse 8, their share is in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death, which is also the conclusion of the great white throne judgment at the end of chapter 20. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now next week, we'll see more detail about the nature of our future home uh, that was first introduced way back in Laodicea, in the message to Laodicea, the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven. But this introduction is enough, I think, for now. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you again for your word. We thank you that you've chosen to reveal these things to us, even though they uh, seem strange and sometimes hard to understand at times. We thank you that you've given us your spirit to help discern these things. And we uh, pray as we go forward that you'll continue to work in our hearts and to give us guidance how to understand these important truths, this tremendous vision of what we're headed for. Pray in Jesus' name.